CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I am Jack Fowler. Lucky man. Lucky man. I get to talk to the great VDH twice a week. My behalf a little. On your behalf, I hope. Anyway, VDH, that's Victor Davis Hanson. He's the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. And he's the, the star of the Victor Davis Hanson Show, which is what this is. Victor and I are talking right now on the 29th of December. This particular episode will be up on the 2nd of December, uh, excuse me, of January 2024. So uh, Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen. As we um, are talking today, though, on Friday, the news is broken about Maine's Secretary of State trying to pull a Colorado and keep Donald Trump off the ballot, the presidential 2024 ballot in the, in Maine. And uh, we have plenty more stories uh, to get Victor's or articles or uh, to get Victor's take on re uh, regarding Claudine Gay, the uh, president of Harvard. And maybe if we have time, Victor, we'll, we'll get to Neil Ferguson's piece on um, the uh, terror of the intellectuals. And we'll do all that r beginning right after these important messages. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Uh, folks, you should begin the year, the new year, by subscribing to Victor's website. That's the Blade of Perseus, VictorHanson.com. I will tell you more about how to do that, why you should, should do that later in the podcast. Victor, though, let's begin with getting your thoughts on this uh, main secretary of state, Shenna Bellows, not, a, um, not even an elected official herself. Some states do elect the Secretary of State, not Maine. She's appointed by the legislature. 
She unilaterally decided that Donald Trump violated the U.S. Constitution through January 6th, insurrectionists. Therefore, she has she declares that he cannot be on the ballot uh, come November. By the way, Victor, uh, Maine is one of the, I think, other than Maine, Nebraska, maybe two states that divide their electoral college votes uh, based on congressional district. And Maine has two seats, and one of them is always in play. Anyway, Victor, your thoughts about this? Two things make a trend, right? I mean, yeah. we have a well, trend. I mean, it was really weird because um, she kind of said that they're going to overturn it. So the point is, she goes, even if they overturn it, they're all likely. Uh, but she just, she wasn't elected. And she has just decided that, she, that, and she's a leftist. We know that from her remarks, social media, et cetera, past. So she just, A, unilaterally on her own declared Trump guilty of insurrection. Again, for a crime he's never been charged with, much less convicted of but in her opinion. So then it begs the question, by what standard or benchmark are you using? Uh, so if you say that the election was a fraud, that's insurrection. If so, Hillary Clinton said that Donald Trump was illegitimately elected. So did Jimmy Carter in 2016. Stacey Abrams would be behind bars. She not only said she was a real governor, she said she was a victim of a racist campaign uh, to deny her the vote that she actually received, which was she lost by 50,000 votes. Should she? I don't remember anybody taking her off the ballot when she ran again. So they know what they're doing. And, you know, it's kind of like a tick or a scratch. They know they shouldn't do it uh, constitutionally. and It's not good for the republic. They even know that it's not good for their own political futures because it's only helping Trump. But they can't stop it. It's like a cigarette you can't put away or a chocolate bar. You you say you're not going to finish it, but you do anyway. She knows that, but they can't stop. And she thinks they're going to build momentum and put pressure on the court. Or they feel, as I said earlier, when Sammy mentioned it, they feel it's going to hurt the down ballot Republican uh, governor, you know, local offices, senators, uh, representatives. But they... All that said, they know that, that the, what they're doing is wrong, and they know that if the Republicans did it, it would unwind the republic. But they yeah. know that. And so we, I get back to that metaphor of an adolescent and adult. They just assume that they can do stuff and throw tantrums and act outrageously because the parent's not going to do that. The parent's not going to say, oh, you pay me money or I'm not going to take you. If you, you know, the parent will say, calm down. This is not helpful. You must do this. But if the parent acts like a child, then the whole family implodes. And so, you well, Victor, know. Maine's a quirky uh, state politically. It 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 did under LePage, you know, a few years ago, not all that long ago. I think his first name was Paul. Paul LePage was the uh, governor, twice elected conservative, and I'm pretty sure Republicans control the Maine legislature for at least one term. But, you know, that that that's kind of impossible in Rhode Island or Connecticut or Vermont. But uh, as for the let's affect things down ballot, I, I don't know that Shanabella's uh, 
realizes recent history in her own state. We'll, we'll see. I do agree with you, though. I, 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 I believe these kind of efforts only um, enhance the possibility of Trump being elected president as opposed to hurting. Yeah, it is. And then it's it's even weirder than that. It's they're coupled with these warnings that he would be a dictator or override democracy, which is what they're doing. Besides the fact of projection, it is almost like they want to do so many extra legal things that they hope Donald Trump will respond if he were to be elected in kind. And then what? They would get out in the street with a million strong. I don't know what they're trying to do. Uh, I know they don't want Trump as president. I know that they know that this is helping Trump to be president. I know that they know that the, if if the Republicans did what they did, we wouldn't have a country. And I know they know all of this, and I know that they want to continue. And that can only tell me they want some kind of crisis. You know, they really do. Um, yeah. And I think the Republicans, conservatives are in the driver's seat. All they have to do is just press on and make the appeal to swing voters and say, are these the people you want to have in control of your destiny? You look at the border. It does not exist. You look at what they're doing to us, Syria, the Houthis, Iran. You look at what this whole budget, $1.7 trillion, he keeps printing money and handing it out illegally to people. You look at what he did to the FBI and the CIA. You look at what crime is like. You want all that? And that's what you vote, keep voting for. Yeah. And I think I wasn't sure that he could win. You know, I've said that on this podcast. And I think he can now. I do. I do. Because I, yeah. I, I think people are mobilized. I think prior to all this, there were not just never Trumpers, but there were certain, I don't know, Rhino, whatever they are. They had voted for Trump once, uh, maybe twice, but they said they wouldn't do again. And they were kind of angry, but they were going to just find a way. Maybe, maybe not kind of sort of vote. But when voting day or came, eh, not going to vote. For, I think they'll vote now. I think it really mobilizes people. Yeah. Uh, and it's happening at this exact same time that uh, mm -hmm. Joe... Joe Biden is fading. People are not enthused about him. And everybody says, well, the economy is going great. And they just they just miss the central truth that it's prices for the, what counts, food yeah. and fuel. I know it goes that there are gyrations and housing and mortgages. Mm -hmm. They're up about 20 to 30 percent since when he took office, which would be an annual inflation rate of about 9 percent on average. Oh, come on, Victor. Come on. Come I don't on, I don't really care what you know what the price of a, a flour is or something right. i care about what steaks are and potatoes and vegetables and gasoline and yeah. diesel fuel and carpentry and romax and plumbing supplies and the mortgage that i'm paying seven percent on that's what i care about and it's awful under uh biden well i i think I think you got to give Biden a little credit. Don't you feel better as an American this week that Joe Biden is tackling the uh, the um, crisis at the border? What used to be a border? You said that news, all these cabinet secretaries are going out to Mexico to try and deal with the Mexican government to figure this out. There, blah, there's blah. only one. There's only he doesn't care. He he thought this is what he did. He, I can't even say he. This is what the Obamas did. They thought. 
the diversity, equity, inclusion, rainbow coalition, victimized, oppressed is a multiracial coalition. It's intersectional. And therefore, when we let all these people come in, we are enhancing our 30%. It's going to get to 35, 40, and everybody's going to be happy. And what's happening partly because the brilliance of the Texas, Florida, and other governors by sending people to places like Martha's Vineyard, Chicago, to New York, is that it's having the opposite effect. And they can't afford that opposite effect. They have so alienated the white working class that they need these 95%, 93% black vote unanimity, and then they need Latino votes at about 70%. And they're not getting that now. They're down to about 55, if that, Latino. And they're down to about 85, 86% black vote. And they can't win with those those ratios. And more importantly, they have galvanized the so-called white working class to get out and vote. And so now, as response to that, they're going down to the border and begging Mexico. And Obrador is a bully. And he not he all he reacted to was when Trump went down there and told him, you do the following or we're going to tax remittances at 10 percent or something and we're going to get out of NAFTA. And then he clicked his heels and said, yes, sir, he won't. Biden won't do that. And he knows that he knows that Biden wants some superficial, non-important, empty gesture. I think he cleaned out a couple of uh, migrant camps near the border, he, just some photo op just to get by the next year, because essentially Biden is getting what he wants. That's what they want. They want, we've got eight, over 8 million. They want 10 or 12 million people to come in here. And, you know, I, as I said before, I live in ground zero. So I'm a couple of miles from a discount food market. I drive from the country in town. And I, I was thinking about our pod today. And yesterday I went in and I, I was in a line and I was saw eight eight people, not one Jack, not one did not have an EBT card, not one. Mm. And every, every single one then pulled out a big wad of cash to pay for things like alcohol and non-qualifying uh, EBT electric uh, banking transferred cards. Right, and none of them spoke English because they had the person was speaking Spanish to them, and so that's the type of that phenomena is what Biden wants, and that's what the liberal mind wants. It says to itself, I am insulated as long as you don't send them to Martha's Vineyard or Atherton or La Jolla. I'm insulated from this. But in the abstract, I like the idea that people who were poor in Oaxaca or Chiapas or somewhere, Michoacan, can come up here and get food because I have so much money that the taxes really don't bother me. And then more importantly, they are a, they're in solidarity with my liberal agenda because they owe me. And uh, that's why the left-wing bicoastal elite so hates black conservatives, not just that they're opposed ideologically to them, but they feel they're traitors. They right. don't. They don't patronize me. I was their patron. They were. They were my client, and they broke that bond. Look at all I did for them. They're in full of ingratitude. And yeah, so that's why they do it. And it's, you know, it's just incremental. It's just incremental. So when you have that many people who are coming to your country and they're not on the same page, 
uh, because they haven't been acculturated and they're coming in mass and no one is saying to the person who steps across the border, have you had a smallpox? Have you had a polio? Have you had whooping cough? Have you had a COVID vaccination? Do you have any of that? Who are you? Do you have a criminal record? Where are you going to go? Do you speak English? Do you have means of support? Do you have any? They don't ask any of that. They just send them and then they tell us, hey, to get a real ID, you're not going to be able to fly. And they keep postponing, of course, because people are not complying. But finally, I guess it's next year. You have to have show, you know, that you're a resident of your state, that you have a passport or it's birth certificate plus your driver's license. And then they just put these people on flights without any of that. Yeah. And so a lot of people, you know, people are getting very angry at that. And uh, it's enormous cost. And what does that mean? What does it mean when I say enormous cost? It just changes people's lives. So if I drive five miles down the road, I just go very slow now because if I go on any non-major thoroughfare, there's going to be a dog on the road because people will be six or seven families living behind an old farmhouse and they will have uh, Winnebago's or trailers or makeshift sheds. They'll have chickens, dogs, a lot of them, they'll go out in the middle of the road. I quit riding my bicycle five years ago. I used to ride 25 miles because it was too dangerous. Dog, I got bit twice and the people just ran in their house and closed the door and wouldn't come out. And that just, it's just, it's nothing to do with race. It's nothing to do with anything other than bringing in millions of people who don't know anything about the United States, which is okay. We've done that before, but we did it legally. And we did it with some type of audit and some rudimentary background and health checks. And we're not doing that. Hey, Victor, um, we've got plenty more to talk about. But before we do, I'd like to take a minute to mention our sponsor, AMAC. That's the Association of Mature American Citizens, America's leading senior advocacy and benefits organization and the conservative alternative to AARP. AMAC pays attention to the voices of its members, I'm one, and champions their concerns on Capitol Hill. Join us today. Visit amac.us slash Victor. An AMAC membership starts at only $16 and it will provide you with superior benefits and a community of over 2 million members just like you who are dedicated to preserving our traditional American values uh, you've now seen for yourself how your dollar is funding the the uh, system, in quotes, the system, and it's not taking you as far as it once did. Giving your money to organizations like AARP only further funds the decline of our conservative values. What to do about it, folks? Join AMAC today. Save our great nation. Again, visit amac.us slash victor to choose the right plan for you, and we thank the good, good people at AMAC for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, you know, we've talked, um, you and I, and, and I know you and Sammy have talked plenty in recent podcasts about Harvard and Claudine Gay, but um, I think it's worth talking, uh, discussing this uh, more because of the, um, it's, it's so... Uh, such the centerpiece for the the culture war we're fighting in 
And um, I noticed you you wrote a, a longish uh, tweet now X whatever you want to call it uh, about her and and ten reasons why she will step down. And if and if you if you discuss that with Sammy, we'll we'll talk about something else. Did did you discuss just, that with we, her? We did in passing, just uh, in passing. Uh, All right, because because we have that and we have her history at Stanford, which you know something a little about and her Obama involvement and frankly, her standing as a as a, you know, a scholar, quote unquote, scholar in America today. So there are a couple of angles here we can talk about her. But if if you'd like to give us a little pricey on your on your your Twitter post, that would be great. And then I I went through on Twitter. I kind of did it more comprehensively. I said, uh, and I and I stand by it because I don't think it's tenable. I think I in the on Twitter I just said that she's not going to be able to continue being president. I think they're just going to wait for an opportune time so they don't look like they're caving to pressure. And uh, people said, well, they have. I, I had a couple of people write, write me and said, well, they haven't got rid of her yet. They will, and they will for a variety of reasons. They can't play the race card because Liz McGill was fired with far more accomplishments. She was a white uh, woman. We know that it, we, we've had renewed interest on her own, uh, Claudine Gay's past. And when you look at it, what do you find out? You find out one thing, that her whole life has been nothing but exemptions. And she got the tenure at Stanford with less than competitive scholarship. She did at Harvard as well. She didn't tell the truth in front of the committee. She said that it it depends on context. If she want, she believes that the only context is if you're Jewish uh, and you're a target of people calling for your destruction or genocide. There's no there's no consequences. If you're black or Latino or gay or trans, and somebody says I I, I from the river to the sea type of metaphor, we want then you're done. You're done, and then. Everybody knows that she wouldn't be honest about it, and even if she were honest, she doesn't. She doesn't understand that if you're a Jewish student and the president of Harvard University won't condemn somebody that wants to kill you, it's like Representative Stefanik said. What, what do you? What do you? What do you mean by context? Do they have to shoot a person? And then, of course, there's the plagiarism, and there's now each day there's a little bit more, and it was. We were told duplicative language, a new euphemism that the board used, I guess, from their law firm. But now it's more than a, a word or two. It's whole sentences, even a paragraph or two, and no citations. And it's intellectual theft. And as I said in, in a tweet in the article, you can either be a preeminent university in the world or you can have a plagiarist as your president. You can't have both. And they do have both now. Yeah. And they're going to have to do something about it. Miss Pritzer is, I guess, she the chairman of the board. She was Obama's yeah. cabinet officer. She's talking right. to him all the time. He's weighed in. Of course, that's ironic because Obama, as we learned from David Garrow, uh, I, I don't know what the word would be, fabulous. His whole memoir was made up. It wasn't accurate at all. We knew that from his girlfriend who testified or gave an account that was not anywhere near what Obama said, and he never tried to refute that. And then there were other allegations that there are sentences or echoes of other people's work in it. So what when he calls up and says, 
you know, calls the board and says, don't fire her. What does that mean? That's like having Joe Biden. Is Joe Biden going to call up and say or make a statement? I, I think we should. This is a witch hunt. This play. No, he's a plagiarist. He plagiarized Neil Kinnock's entire speech. That, that's just what he did on a campaign. He got disciplined in law school for plagiarizing. And Obama's a fabulist. So there's not a lot of leftists. Maybe Doris Kearns uh, Goodman can come out. Or maybe, <laughs> may, I don't know, maybe Fareed Zakaria or Marine Dowd. Oh, this is horrible what they're doing to her. Yeah. I don't think so. There's too many p- people on the left that were plagiarists that can't say a word. Yeah. So I don't see where the constituency is. And then the question is, how many, what's her, what's the price to keep her there in a very mercantile, mercenary sense? Is it 500 million in lost donations? A, a billion? Because it's going to add up. If you were Jewish American and you saw what she said and you see what's going on at Harvard, then why would you give any, why would you subsidize that? And then right. when you add in there that like Yale, about 80%, 70 to 80% of people get A's. And so it, these are not nice places, everybody. They're not, they're not, they're not nice places where you want to send your children or go to yourself. I, I work at one. They're not nice people. Well, they're, let's they're, let's talk. They're, a, they're a, bullies. A, a, yeah, about about. I want to talk a little more. If you don't want, to, I don't want to talk, Victor. I want to hear you talk. <laughs> hear a little more about um, your memories of her at, at Stanford when she when she got tenure at, at Stanford, but and also Victor. That she, uh, Kevin Hassett, who's, uh, you know, our friend, Kevin, uh, he, he's a, a, a visiting fellow, some sort of fellow at Hoover. And he ran, uh, he was the head economist for for uh, Donald Trump. And Kevin's just a great guy. And he wrote something for National Review the other day that it, it, take the plagiarism aside. What was she plagiarizing about? What kind of the esoteric, maybe the wrong word, the narrowness of the topic that 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 how could she or anyone like her be considered an intellectual? Just the just the the meaninglessness uh, of of what her scholarship was about. I mean, it's, it's just so insignificant. Well, there was not one thing that she ever published that was not about how black people are systematically victimized in the present age. And then when you look at her resume, you think, and then remember after George Floyd, she made a national stir stir by writing a letter and saying that she felt personally unsafe. I can tell you she's a lot safer in her neighborhood than a lot of other people are in other neighborhoods. But the thing was, she's from a very upper, upper middle class or maybe even aristocratic class, I think from Haiti. And she went to, did she go to Phillips Academy? And then she went a year at Princeton. Then she went to Stanford. Then she went to Harvard. She's had nothing but deference and exemption. And she's written about nothing. So the contrast is embarrassing. On the one hand, here's somebody from her teenage years was given subsidies and you know, getting into places where people with much stronger credentials were refused. And she was given these exemptions. And then what does she do when she's in a position to write and reflect and add to the scholarly discourse, she just says that she's a victim. 
So what would what would she write if she was a victim? And you know, it's this passive aggressiveness that it's just ubiquitous that all these people make claims against this country and how bad it is and how bad it is. If it's so bad and it's institutional, don't go. Just say, you know what? I'm not going to go to Phillips. I'm going to go to Morehouse College. When I'm not going to go to Stanford. I'm going to go to a black school. I just can't stand this racist. But they know it's not racist. And they want to participate because they understand that it has this illustrious tradition and it's a gateway to career success. And that's why they go. And they don't experience any racism any more than any other person, you know. I mean, you could look at, like, you know, it was very funny. In the old days, you couldn't look at your transcript. And I, when I got out uh, a PhD, uh, there were no jobs for white males. So I was farming for five years. And one of my professors, I won't mention anything, called me up and said, you know, I know there's no jobs, but I don't think you're going to get a job anyway. I said, why was that? He said, because this professor, who's very prominent, wrote something on your transcript. And he said, do you have a friend? that?" You? So I, I did. I just said to a friend, I, uh, maybe I'm going to apply for your job. And he said, okay, I'll request your transcript. And he showed it to me. That's what people used to do in those days. And the, this professor said at one point, Something to the effect, I don't have a photographic memory, so I can't remember what he said, completed all the exams as if they were a road race, did the secondary languages, did superb work in Greek and Latin, however, felt out of place, reflecting his rural roots, made no effort to, to master French, spoken French or spoken, did, had, had no interest in symphony or opera. And... That had nothing to do with it. Wait, what? what? Yeah. Seriously? It, yeah, that yeah. It was like I was, a, I, I, I was like a rube. Holy and shit. this was a letter, though, that the guy who was in a capacity as a chairman wrote him, thinking he was, I guess, an academic. That was out, out. That was in addition. So I said, well, what's on the transcript? You don't mean the transcript. He said, oh, it's there on the transcript. It's not in such detail. He his, did very well, but it reflects his rural... Okay, rural background. But, but did I feel like a victim? No. Why didn't I? Because I was 20 years old and I got into the Stanford PhD program based on your GRE, your knowledge of Greek and Latin. And then they paid for it for four years. I had to be a TA, but they paid for it. It didn't cost me a penny. I never had a student loan. And then I, I met out of the 15 professors, I met nine that were really good. And yeah, there was some bad people there that were petty and mean and arrogant. But my point is, when you look at everything, you, you want to see some positive stuff right. there. Can't she yeah. said, say, I, I mean, I, I said, you know, I was just saying, well, this guy is a fop. He's an East Coast snob that wrote this. He thinks he's an opera critic. You know, I used to have a... Um, service where I would mow graduate professors' lawns. I had I had a little pickup. So yeah. I would, maybe I had nine clients so that they had very, in those days, everybody wanted a Japanese-American gardener. They were the best, but they didn't do the 
take out the trash stuff, right? They would go to their yards and say, we're going to plant this and this and this and this. And then they would leave and I would come like two hours later and pick up all the, you know, cuttings or the trash. Or if they wanted to take out a patio, I would take a sledgehammer and take it out. Or if they lived behind a gully and there was people were throwing trash down in the gully, I would get a rope and go down. I did all that stuff. I thought it was pretty good. I was from a farm and I could fix things. You know, so I fix things around their house. But my point is, I, I did all that. And this one of my clients was this guy who wrote that. And the guy didn't know how to do anything. I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing. He couldn't turn on the faucet. He couldn't do anything. And did he know? Did he ever know that you found out about no i never t- this first time i've ever told anybody i just came to my mind because of claudine oh, gay gay's oh, act that she was done a disservice yeah but i also had a thesis advisor that year who was in the three most he was a president of the american philological association he was the head of the american school of classical studies and he was probably the senior person in classics at stanford and we had a very tumultuous relationship Partly because I was very outspoken, and and that and and what I'm trying to get is most of the people were European, right. and they were very good philologists. Or if they were Americans, they were all from the West Coast, and most of the students went to prep school. Not all of them, but most. And I was a guy from rural Salma. I'd gone to crazy UC Santa Cruz, but I knew Latin and Greek really well, so they respected that. But they thought I was very unpolished, and I wasn't a I don't want to use the word intellectual because I read a lot, but it was more like you don't know which are the good restaurants in San Francisco, right. or you don't go to opera on campus, or you not you don't play a musical instrument, or you don't go you don't break into French in the classics lounge, that kind of stuff. And I was outspoken too, and they didn't like it, and I took the wages of that, but I never said, oh, they did me a disservice. Yeah. And when I was looking at all this, I haven't really talked about that to our audience. I don't want to talk about it because some of the people are still alive. Right. It's not, not fair to just give my version of it. But when I looked at her resume, and then I thought, what was your experience in academia? Well, I can tell you what my experience in academia was. It was farming for 10 hours and going up to Cal State Fresno in 1981, 82, 83, 84, 85, 84 and being told we're not going to, we, I'm sorry, we do not hire white males in the Department of Foreign Languages. And we have no Greek and Latin, so we don't want to hire you. And finally, I got hired as part time. Or it was, I was the head of the hiring committee, and the dean called me up and said, Victor, don't dare do it. Do not, I do not want to see the name of a white male. You understand that? And if you repeat what I said, I'm going to deny it. That, and so that was what it was always like that for every right. service. Right. Every search. And so I'm not talking about 2015. I'm talking about 1986, 91, 94, 97. And then I taught as a visiting professor at Stanford and in 91 and 92. And I had I was told a particular student who was not very good, not that it had nothing to do with his race, but that guy had some problems that that. You know, don't, don't, don't grade this way. Don't grade this way. 
And I had a seminar that I think 14 people signed up before I got there. When I got there, there was three. I said, what happened to the students? They said, well, this one faculty doesn't like you. And she told everybody not to take your class. I said, okay, fine. That's the way it goes. Free country. I can mm-hmm. remember... I can remember all those stories, and as a scholar and everything, I've uh, you know it's it's that's that's what it was. But my attitude every time was that it's a free country. They want to do that, you just have to be better than everybody else. Just work, work, work. We were talking about Hesiod the other day. That was really influential. Work upon work upon work, but don't keep taking stuff and then get angry that they act right. that way. Right, and so. Her, so what I'm getting at is she's created a whole mythology that says that academia has been racist. It has been racist, but reverse racism, reverse racism. You know, I, mean, I, I was on a committee. I won't mention the politician to give a honorary degree, a CSU honorary degree to this politician. This politician had not finished its, the necessary units. It wasn't a not it was excuse me. It was not an honorary degree. It was to finally give him a bachelor's degree so when he ran for state office he could say he was a college graduate and right. i was on the i was on the committee to examine that and i can tell you that he was 15 12 units short so these people concocted a way of giving him independent study credit for stuff he'd done like press conferences and i what? said that what wait well, press conferences or, or well, credit independent study i shouldn't say okay. that all right Independent, retroactive independent. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. So I told the president that. I said, this is racist. It was racist. You wouldn't do this for any other person. But this person is an ethnic identification, uh, you know, and we're doing something. So it was that way all the way. It wasn't that I was fighting it. I just, it was just ubiquitous. Right. You know, it was, we'd, I would be on a, a, a committee for a French professor. And there would be a white guy and a white woman. And then there'd be some guy who was from Argentina who put an accent on his name, but was probably Italian, basically. And we would give preference for because that person was a quote unquote Latino. We did that all the time. Yeah. And then my job, because I was chair about nine of this, was somebody just like myself who for five years couldn't get a job. And then for another two was part-time. And that was, the guy calls you up. He was just like me. A guy would call up, hey, I'm Tom Smith. You remember me? I, I had that I was, I had that PhD from the University of Michigan. And I didn't even get a, a first-round interview. You guys didn't interview you. You say, Tom, we have 115 applicants. I can't believe they want to all come to Cal State for us. No, they don't. But that's the, and you're better qualified than all my colleagues, but I can't hire you. Because we have to do this. And he said, well, can I sue? I said, you can call the dean and tell him I told you that. And sometimes they did. And the dean would call me up and say, what the blank are you doing? Yeah. But but that's, I, I'm just getting on this yeah. de- detour, Jack, to remind everybody that is the real world. It was not this mythological Professor Kendi uh Ta-Nehisi quotes that they every single day in the world of letters and arts and university, it's just white privilege and white race. It's not. It's not for admissions. And the other thing I remember is I got about 50 people into the Ivy League over, 
I don't know, 22 years, not just in PhD classics, but law school and business school and master's degrees and PhDs. And you know what? Almost everyone, it was, how do we get the white guy in? I, I got people who were Hispanic and black in everywhere. And then I had the white guy. And I'd say, okay, we got a white guy problem. What are we going to do about it? And they'd say, well, and I'm not talking about white guys that grew up in Westchester or Carmel. Yeah. I'm talking white guys from Bakersfield, Delano, Modesto, Kingsburg, just white working class. And economic class beneath what Claudine gave. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the deplorables, the irredeemables, yeah. the chumps, the, the chumps. crazies, okay. the, the clingers, the dregs, all the words that. Biden, yeah. Biden and Obama used. That's who I'm talking about. And it was very hard to get them in, even if no matter what their requirements were. I'd always ask them, are you Native American? Or do you have any Hispanic lineage? And it was yeah. racist. Yeah. And but I would get and then I won't mention names because this person, I really like this one person. He was great. He was a great student. He had natural aptitude. I gave him maybe 10 independent studies over four years. He got a master's. He got into graduate school at Princeton, and he, he deserved it. But they called up, and they said, there's a problem. He's an illegal alien. We have to get, verify his uh, citizenship. So I said to person X, are you an illegal alien? He said, yes. I said, okay. And I said, you're not 21? He said, no, he's like 30. <laughs> and so I called the guy back and I said, well, he is an illegal alien. But he wasn't calling me to disqualify him. He was calling me so I could confirm that he could tell everybody that he had admitted an illegal alien. And this was wonderful. I, Are you serious, Victor? This guy's really an illegal alien? I said, yes. And he'd be a very good graduate school, but he is an illegal alien. Oh, it doesn't matter. That is so great. And that was the story with everything. And it's that way at Stanford today. And it's that way everywhere. Yeah. And so I, I don't mind it. I just I just don't like people lying about it, like Claudine Gay and saying that she's she's heterodox or she's swimming against the current or something. She's not. She's an apparatchik. And the fact is she is not. Roland Fryer, one of the most brilliant economists of his generation, who happens to be black. She's not. And, she's, and he was disciplined by her. He, she, she's not, Ro, she's not uh, Ronald Sullivan, a brilliant black lawyer who's, who's def defended everybody, who's liberal, that she went after because he defended, remember, uh, uh, Weinstein. So yeah. it, it, it's... We're right. trying to get is that it doesn't have much to do with race because those guys were conservative blacks. And if you're conservative black like Shelby Steele or Tom Sowell or J Jason Hill or any of those people, you're going to have it rough just as much as any other. Well, person. and who gave it to them rough at Harvard? Yes. So she, what I'm yeah. saying is yes. she was a bully. She picked yeah. Yeah. and used yeah. her position and she doesn't reflect well. She doesn't reflect well. On yeah. Har Harvard, because Harvard is now telling the world 
we have the biggest endowment of any university in the world. We have the most money. We have the most prestige. And we have somebody that we're not going to fire who will not say a word if you call uh, for the entire destruction of the Jewish people, even though mm-hmm. we would expel anybody else who said similar things about any other ethnic or religious group. And by the way, we have a president who 60% of her meager output is on in doubt that she has uh, appropriated intellectual property from someone else. Yeah. And that's what, you, that's what you have. The greatest, the quote-unquote greatest uh, uh, school of higher education in the nation is, is being run by a plagiarizing and, and, mediocre and, 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 and Yeah, and I mean, the, what, some of the donors, was it Ackerman? Is that his name? The, Ackman, I think. Ack, Ackman, yeah. He said, yeah. rumors tell me, and it's rumors, so don't take it from me, but he said that she is threatened to sue on, as if she was a victim of racism, but that wouldn't be possible. Because all they would do is, is, wow, what were your grades to get in Philip? What were your grades and SAT scores to get in Stanford? What was your intellectual output when you were at Stanford to get tenure in the political science department vis-a-vis mm-hmm. other people? What was your intellectual output at Harvard to become a full professor? What was your administrative experience to be president? And what is your scholarly output compared to other presidents of that caliber institution? That's all you have to do. And I don't think it's a persuasive argument that she's been a victim of anything except a beneficiary of pre- uh, preference. Right. It's not that. Yeah. So what I'm trying to this long excursus is I think we have this. This idea that there, yes, there was systematic racism in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s and 1950s. During the civil rights movement from 1960s and early 70s, there was race neutrality. But by the mid-70s or early 70s and the 80s and the 90s, for the next 50 years, there's been reverse racism. They call it reverse discrimination. Call it what you want. We knew that. The same thing is true in movies, Jack. You and I talk about movies. And there was racist movies, uh, Everybody knows Birth of the Nation. There's condescending thing of black characters that are not portrayed in roles that are necessary, anything other than one-dimensional. Step and not, yeah. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. Maids, etc. But you get into the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and you see things like HUD, excuse me, Ombre talking about discrimination against Native Americans. You look at those Sidney Poitier movies, you start to see a very different, view and you get into the the recent movies i mean as i said earlier you look at go down direct uh you know it's white men can't jump and there's a word white almost in every 15th or 20th movie on direct tv it's all in a deprecatory fashion and so this is what america does it's a radical democracy it's kind of what herodotus Noted when he said that when you, it's easier to convince 30,000 uh, Athenians to do something than it is a few thousand oligarchs in, in Sparta. And we're on to kind of a, a mass hysteria, just like we've seen it. We saw it after 2008 with the meltdown. We saw it with the COVID going out, you know, the Karen phenomenon. We saw it right. with the George Floyd riots. We saw it with the Me Too. And we were on this race kick. And it's anti-intellectual, it's anti-empirical, it's anti-enlightenment, and nobody has the guts to talk about it. 
but it, it, it does a lot of damage. And well, we still have a little more to talk about it related uh, to Obama. And Victor, let's, uh, let's explore that a little bit right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show again uh... We're recording on the 29th of December, but this particular episode should be out on the 2nd of January. Happy New Year, uh, dear listeners. So, Victor, um, my my friend, uh, Ben Weingarten, you may know Ben. Um, he's all over the place. I don't know he's right. He writes for the, for the Federalist, American Greatness, um, Real Clear. He's just a, Ben's a terrific guy. He has a piece in the uh, New York Post the other day about here's why Obama stepped in to save Harvard Prez Claudine Gay. And I'm just going to read a very little uh, passage here. He said, uh, like Lafayette Gay broadly, Obama's intervention should be seen as a major salvo in the broader war over diversity, equity, and inclusion in America's most influential institutions. Obama is making a play to protect the DEI regime itself, a regime already roiled by the backlash against wokeism and the Supreme Court's strike against affirmative actions in schools critical to maintaining political power. So this is, uh, anyway, Victor, any thoughts about Yeah, I, I, that? For, first of all, I, I want to warn everybody that I know the Supreme Court is a law of the land in terms of judicial rulings, but you have no idea of the Machiavellian mind of the academic administrator and the faculty. They have prepared for this and they will do anything to continue race-based admissions, firing. It won't matter. They're lawless people. So I know the Supreme Court says it's illegal to consider, but we had something called Prop 209 in California. 
And I remember being on committees where I said, this is against California state law because all we are doing is discussing these candidates in terms of their skin color and not their output or, or their teaching effectiveness or their academic record. And it had no, nothing. It, had, it mattered nothing, nothing, nothing. We had affirmative action officer in every search. And I said, it's against the law. It says you can't do that. Well, we're going to do it anyway. And that's the attitude. So uh, you tell me if the Supreme Court's going to have any effect. I hope it does. But I think they have all they've already found ways to ignore it. And they will really they'll war against it. They really will. And so uh, just a sidelight there, Jack. But uh, I think we're we're not going to change the system until people stand up. Everybody stands up and says, I'm not going to, we're not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to a separate graduation based on race. I'm just not going to do it. And we're not going to have dorms that are segregated by race. We went too far in the civil rights movement and the Fair Housing Act to go back and say, it's going to be separate but equal, just so long as all the dorms are, they're separate but equal, but, uh, you can't have some Italian dorm. You can't have an Irish dorm. You can't have a Bulgarian dorm. You can't have a Greek dorm. You can only have a Latino, Asian, or black dorm. That's the rule, isn't it? And who wants to go to a university like that? And so, I don't know. It's uh, it's not going to change. It's just like, do you think... Jack, just asking a rhetorical question. Do you yeah. think that after that testimony and what has surfaced about President Gay, that the radical Palestinian pro-Hamas movements are feeling a little edgy, that they are not going to mass in Harvard Square or go to the library to disrupt people now because they're so afraid that she's going to clamp down on them? I don't. I don't at I, all. I think these people could be, should be, between a rock and a heart, but these people being the gays of the world. You know, Victor, that um not that we didn't know about the atrocities of of uh of a big Hamas, but that yeah. New York Times piece. I mean it's Oh just, my god. It's stomach churning. Everybody uh, should everybody should read that. This is coming from the most left wing major newspaper in the United States. And for them to do a thorough investigation asterisk but they yeah. said they could confirm most of what the idea if not all of what they said these were women who were being raped and in the process of being raped were being tortured and killed these yeah, are one people woman who having her having rest. her rest yeah go ahead uh, it makes you want to vomit yeah. and these people on campus what are they what are they um what are they protesting for shutting down the bridge here's what they're protesting for because they didn't do, they didn't suddenly say, oh, my God, Hamas did all this. We can't condone that. But at least Israel hasn't reacted. No, they did. They were cheering when they did do this and they heard it. That's what Mr. Rickford, Professor Rickford at Cornell was doing when he said he was exhilarated on news of just what we talked about. And so what are they protesting for? They're protesting for Hamas and what Hamas does. And there's a lot of good descriptions coming out. People should just search IDF and reporting because finally there's a lot of report. There's Hamas people who uh, come out and they shoot behind people in wheelchairs. 
They get into crowds of women and children and then shoot between the crowds at the IDF, et cetera. They found suicide vests for small people, little kids, uh, you name it. Any pre-modern savage act that they're capable of doing. And remember, there are peace negotiations going on now that have one caveat. There will be elections and let the people of Gaza decide. If they want to elect, I have no doubt they'll probably elect Hamas again. But let's get an international election supervised, just like they do in Israel. They have elections and then let the West Bank. And guess who's against it? All of the Palestinian leaders. Hamas won't consent to it. No, no, we're not going to have an election. No, 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 no. We, we're going to use shields. We're going to build our headquarters under hospitals and mosques and schools. And we're going to rape women, even after we take them captive. And we're going to torture people. And we're going to mutilate them. And we're going to decapitate them. And we're going to use children as suicide uh, attackers. And we're going to use old people and young girls and hide behind them. And we're going to take all the multi-billion dollars we've gotten from every foreign source, and we're going to build our own tunnel and uh, protect us, us. And that's what they're protesting for. And when you look at the how the vehemence of this protest, it raises some interesting questions. What happens if Hezbollah jumps into this and starts attacking not just a random rocket, but starts attacking seriously the United States people in Syria and Iraq. Or what happens if Iran and we get in? Well, who are these people going to be protesting for? I have a feeling they'd be protesting for Hamas against us because actually, sure. after all, there's 30 American hostages, some who have been killed. And excuse me, 10 American hostages, they killed 30 Americans. They didn't say anything. These people right. are basically saying, we're for Hamas, and we don't really care you killed fellow Americans. But, of course, some of them are not Americans who are protesting. And so I don't, I don't think they have any particular fondness for Americans to be victims of these radical people. 30% of young people said they thought bin Laden was right. So that's the problem. And all of this is predicated on an assumption, Jack that Joe Biden and the people around him and that left-wing mentality won't do anything. And that permeates foreign and domestic. It means if you're an American soldier from Iowa and you're 20 years old and you're stuck in some godforsaken place up near Mosul and some kind of base trying to train Iraqi uh, security forces, and they're shelling you, they're not going to do anything. You're not going to be able to retaliate in a, a substantial way that will protect you through deterrence. It just, it, it, they're not. And that means if you're an American and you're taken hostage by Hamas, they're not going to try to pay $1.2 billion to get you back like they did with Iran. They're not going to do it. And that means if you're on a visa from Gaza or from the West Bank and you go out to the Golden Gate Bridge and you shut down traffic and you stop critical medical vehicles right. that have organ transplant. They're not going to do anything to you. Nothing. Nothing. And this is a this is administration that's quite capable of doing things. I mean, think about these people that are in jail for 10 or 12 years for illegal parading and things like that on January. So they're capable of it. Right. They're just right. not going to do anything when it's a question of U.S. interests or security. They're not going to do anything. Yes. 
And that's who's Ox's gourd. Um, uh, you know, Victor, if we can get back, I just want to mention to since we mentioned the New York Times um, that the article is from December 28th. Anyone who wants to go look for it, it's titled Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. And again, it does have, have some stomach churning accounts. And uh, I didn't get to the end of it because I was just I was just, you know, sick of reading it. Uh, I, I, couldn't, it yeah, I couldn't finish it. But I don't think it ends with any kind of uh, home base. Uh, political analysis of um, you know where where's the Me Too left that that should be and we've talked about where the where are the feminists in the face of even before October seventh you know where where's where are the feminists uh, the oppression of women in the Middle East etc. And, and, you know, leftist women are a big part of the leftist coalition. And leftist women are, white women are a lot of the bodies out in the streets protesting. And I'm sure they were out, you know, protesting when Kavanaugh was accused uh, about that crazy lady. Um, I think this article and the accounts of what had happened truly exposes um, the feminist left, but your point would might be they they're not they're not going to react to it they're not going to they're no, not going to no. have it come to Jesus they never they don't like, oh. they, they don't care about that because this whole movement is anti-Semitic and hates Jews and by association does not like white people and they've conflated Jews with whites and they suffer the double wage of being Jewish and supposedly the evil white settler colonial. But, you know, what's funny is these demonstrators mirror image exactly the divide in Gaza right now. So when you look at these demonstrations, is there anything, Jack, they won't do? Will they deface the Lincoln Monument? Yes, they will. Will they will they crash a nativity scene? And yes, they will. Will they surround students and threaten to hurt them in the library? Yes, they will. Will they spit on a police officer and get arrested? Will they disrupt traffic and cause mayhem? Yes. Will they beat a protester to hit him and have him fall and die? Yes. Will And will the other side do that? No. Did the Israelis, when they go in, do they systematically rape Gazan women, Hamas women? There's women in Hamas. When they take them prisoner, do they put them in an Israeli jail and they say, okay, guys, decapitate and rape. They don't do that. And the same thing when you have these protesters is who's hitting the police? Do all the pro-Israelis, do they go after the police? I don't think they do. I haven't seen any do. And who wears masks, Jack? How come every one of these demonstrations, half the people have some kind of face covering? Why don't they be proud? And now these students are very angry at these Ivy Leagues that they've been docs. They call it docs. It's public information. They sign these petitions. So some guy rents a truck with their picture on. This is unfair. So there's a whole element of passive aggressiveness that is here in America and here in Gaza. So Hamas goes over in a time of holiday, a time of peace, and deliberately focuses on unarmed infants, children, women, elderly, and then tries to outdo each other in the most pre-civilizational savagery possible, and then takes hostages and scampers off. 
and then tells the world that they're heroic and they've d- inflicted this on the Jewish state and they're going to do it again and again and again and let the Israel and then the Israelis come and all of a sudden you can't do this this is horrible this is d- disproportionate well why wouldn't you just say bring them on we want to fight them and that's what I don't understand why don't these students say I'm here from Gaza and I hate this country and I don't like Joe Biden and I'm going to scream and yell and I'm going to, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to go out in the Manhattan Bridge and shut it down. I'm not going to hide behind a mask. Here's my face. But they, they don't. It's this most aggressive, venomous protest. And then as soon as there's even a tiny little pushback and there's not much, with this, then they go all of a sudden into a fetal position and play victim. And that's what Hamas is doing, playing victim. And, you know, why don't they just go yeah. out and fight? Uh, at least the Yom Kippur War, it was a surprise attack 50 years earlier, almost to the day. The Egyptians and the Syrians, they used surprise, kind of sneaky, okay. But the Egyptians went out there, and there were some atrocities on the Arab side, and there was a few on the IDF, as I remember, not very many, not nearly as much. But the point is they had a conventional fight and they went at it, right? They didn't do this. They didn't do what Hamas is doing. They didn't hide hide behind uh, civilians. They didn't shoot their own people if they uh, objected to their theft of food. They didn't steal humanitarian aid to build military tunnels under the city. And, you know, in this whole mindset is so crazy. You hear, read these stories, you think, am I crazy? I was reading yeah. one the other day when they said IDF may be flooding tunnels and it could cause damage to the aquifer. Another study says IDF blowing up tunnels, uh, calling causing subterranean tremors. <laughs> well, why would they be doing that? It wouldn't be because they burrowed deeply under their own city and undermined it so they can wage offensive weapons and mutilate and rape. Is it? So I don't, I'm I'm looking, I I hope there's an intrepid reporter or team of reporters out there that tries to find these great philanthropists and uh, who, who gave money to these NGOs who gave money to Hamas, who used it to build these uh, means of destruction and We've terror. Given a, we, yeah, we gave them a billion dollars in the past, yeah. a, a billion. You go back and read. You should go back. And I was doing that this uh, week, going back and reading news, Googling Hamas elections, Hamas uh, government, 2006, 7, 8, 9. It's just amazing how much money went to them from both administrations, the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And it's just incredible how, how what an opportunity they had. There yes. was not one Israeli in Gaza. Uh, they had their election. They picked their government. They were just lavished with all these billions of dollars of foreign money. They expelled all these Israelis that had developed you know, greenhouses. They got rid of them all. All they had to do was just govern. And, you know, they use these terms in the Middle East. It's such lies. I don't know where they get them here or they get them over there, but they say settler, 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 settler. What is a settler? That What does that mean? That means the Jews have not been there for 3,000 years. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Is that what it means? Is it is this, are Arab settlers who came in in the seventh century to what had been a what a Roman, a Byzantine, a Roman, a Hellenistic, a Greek area? Is that what they did? Are they settling? Is that what Bin Laden's ancestor did when they went into Spain? Were they settlers? Is when the Lakota Sioux or the Dakotas go in and they wipe out another tribe and they take over their land? Are they settlers? Does anybody think the tripartite uh, alliance that the Aztecs ruled over that incorporated four million people around uh, Tenochtitlan? Do you think they settled other people? Do you think they suppressed other people? Do they have any idea that settlers as settlers as settlers? It's not a Western phenomenon. Same with colonialism. The Ottomans were the biggest colonialist of anybody. So I don't get this settler stuff. Oh, they're white settlers. They're settlers. They're settlers. Well, half of the Arabs are settling in places that were not. What do you think North Africa was? It was an indigenous Berber population. And then the Phoenicians came and settled it. And after the Phoenicians were driven out, the Romans came in and settled it. And then they were driven out by the Vandals who settled it. And then they were driven out by the Byzantines who settled it. And then they were driven out by the Arabs who settle it. And the whole time, the indigenous population of the Berbers is down to what now? In Arab Morocco, Arab Algeria, Arab Tunisia, Arab Libya, and Arab Egypt. They're all been settled. And the Berber population is in most of those countries less than 10%. I think it's only 1% or 2% left in Libya. Yeah. So are they settlers? You <laughs> seem to have settled it for us. Refugees. Refugees. I couldn't believe it. they said there's a refugee camp. There is no refugee camp. If there's a refugee camp in Gaza, then there's a refugee camp in Cyprus where the 200,000 Greeks are sitting there. Are they? There's a, their homes are called a refugee. There must be a refugee camp in Germany because 13 million people were t- kicked out in the stow and walked across Eastern right. Europe from Prussia after being there a thousand years, and had it taken over by the Poles mostly because the Soviets stole uh, Poland and called it Western Ukraine. Are they settlers? I don't know. Are refugees? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so. There's a lot of refugees in the world, but apparently they only exist in one place. Right. And there's a lot of colonialists that, that exist, but they're only a particular type of colonialists. And there's a lot of imperialists, but there's only a certain type of imperialists that we criticize. So that's right. what, that's what yeah. is so ridiculous. And, sla- and slave traders, you know, that you, you have to have a, a special pedigree to, to truly be a slave trader. <laughs> hey Victor, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, we're, we've got we've got a little time left, and I want to ask you a question. Yeah. When we come back from this important message about about something on your your website, and we'll get that question asked and hopefully answered right after this final important message. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink 
what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Yes, that, that website of Victor's, the Blade of Perseus, you should be checking it out. Fair and dear listener, go to victorhanson.com, and when you're there, you will see the links to Victor's various appearances. You'll find the archives for these podcasts, the links to his books, including his forthcoming book, and um, to his American Greatness uh, essays, one a week, and his syndicated columns, and the Ultra articles. You'll click on it. I want to read that. That looks really interesting. And you won't be able to open it unless you're a subscriber. Five bucks a month, $50 discounted for the year. Treat yourself. Victor writes two or three ultra pieces every week. Victor, I'm on the website the other day, and I saw something in the upper um, right-hand corner of the homepage. It's brand new, and it's it's a painting of you. And it's about a guy named John Robert Peck. And uh, would you would let's would you mind closing out the show and telling us? I had a very strange experience. Yeah, Yeah, he's a uh, he teaches classical painting at Stanford. And uh, I got a message. I think it was from Neil Ferguson or someone that he was painting people. And would he, I like to pose? And I've never done that before. But I met him, and he was a, a very uh, what I liked about um, Mr. Peck was he was a traditionalist. He was talking about classical tropes. So you know, he was not a representational artist, or he was not even. Well, he's he likes the impressionists, but he captures what the eye sees. And so he came to my office. Um, I think four times and did a charcoal and then he did a painting. But more importantly was uh, I looked at his portfolio and then he had me for dinner at his home in the set. I won't say where, but it was not too far away. And I looked at a lot of the stuff he did and it was really good. And so I thought, well, maybe people would like to learn more about what he does and, uh, and his portfolio. So I thought one way of doing it was, I'm not a very good model because I'm a torn up, torn cat up. <laughs> but well, I have, <laughs> I've had a. You distinguished looking uh, from no, all your bike accidents. My, I've had my, tor- <laughs> my lower lip was torn off and retached. Basically. Oh, but anyway, gosh. my point is uh, he did he did that. And I think people would might, if anybody's interested in hiring him as, a, as an artist or wants to to take a class from him. I think he teaches special students. He goes to, uh, I think he goes to Florence or somewhere near there in Italy every year. So he's very distinguished. He yeah. works He works in the Santa Cruz, Los Gatos, Palo Alto radius. 
and he's very talented, very nice person, very well educated. Uh, just and a great artist. Yeah, I checked out his uh, website in a video, and I like, wow, this guy. He comes across as as very he's gentle. Very soft. Yeah, so, yeah, he's not. He's not political. He's not ideological. He's not. He's just if he has an ideology that a person would detect, it is a commitment to classical idealism and realism in art. Yeah, I, I think he's of a small school. Is trying to say, you know what? We inherited this wonderful tradition of making statuary and sculpture and oil and watercolor uh, that represents what the eye sees and not what we think will be, right. you know, something yeah. for the time. So, and all it, the, made, it made me think about that church. You know that story about Churchill, the form, the formal portrait of Churchill. Yes, that book. That has been destroyed by Churchill, I believe, because it was not done in the way that John Robert Peck paints. <laughs> yeah, there's a famous one of Jerry Brown up in the, you know, he was, the, he got a representational artist that looks kind of bizarre. But anyway, yeah. I, I thought it would be good to do that. I, I'm trying to do, as I get to be 70, I'm trying to do stuff I've never done before. And I can tell you, I have never sat, sat still for, uh, to pose for a painting and I found it very enjoyable because he allowed me to talk to him. And so oh, cool. I, I, I talked to at least three or four hours about art and painting and Picasso and everybody. And he had made a good one just last note. He yeah. made a good point that it's something that I used to teach uh, classical art in my humanities classes. But there's always a standard and then you deviate from the standard, which is classical art and the ability to paint and draw and then you go into modern art like a Salvador or Dali or a Picasso right but the deviation from the deviation gets you something else it's you get classical art modern art postmodern art after modern art. and the problem with the deviation of the deviation is they're not taught the skills so a guy like Picasso could draw the impressionist watercolors could draw the people who did not learn the classical tropes to rebel against can't draw. So most of these paintings you see that you don't know what they are. If you right. ask, ask the person, could you make a portrait of something that a person could identify as someone? No, they can't. It's like classics. I, I was taught by classical scholars in the classical sense, Greek and Latin philology, manuscripts, grammar, syntax, uh, the corpus of text you had to read, etc. And then as I got in my middle age, there was a reaction. I was not part of that reaction. A lot of my colleagues were that said, oh, it's all Westocentric and we're just we're going to try to study feminism in the ancient world or the real hero right. of the Odyssey is Penelope, not Odysseus or, you know, Eumaeus the slave is non-spoken. He's uh, politics of resistance, all that. But the point is they all were classically trained. So they, you had a commonality. They knew Greek and Latin. And I could tell when I interviewed candidates over that period that even when they were left wing and trying to be bold in their research on you know the rhetoric of manhood, the poetics of masculinity, all these theses that they had that was common in the night, they, were, they knew Latin and Greek. But they, when they took over, they did not teach people what they had been taught is what i'm saying so the next yeah. deviation from the deviation 
I can tell you when you read their work, they don't know Latin or Greek. They do not know much about the ancient world. They just write crap. And the same thing is true about a lot of the contemporary representational artists. They've never been taught the classical skills in drawing and proportion and anatomy, etc. Yeah. And then you have that three cycles, and then it breaks down, and then somebody comes along and says, well, we had this classical tradition, and then we experimented with all sorts of nice things to do, and it was interesting, and then the next generation was just chaos. So now we're going to go back and start over. And it's circular. So I hope that happens. I think all of us are tired of the postmodern world. We try, you know, we all grew up with saluting the flag and singing God bless America. Right. And then we went in and we had the people with, you know, that rebelled against all that. And yet they were trained by uh, that World War II generation. And then they took over. They were marching on the Pentagon. They're in the Pentagon. They were marching on the university. They're in the president's office. But they did not continue that chain of knowledge. And this this current generation doesn't know anything. 30% think bin Laden's good. If you ask them what, what the Battle of Fredericksburg was or what the Battle of the Bulge was, they have zero idea. And so it's time to go back and start over. Yeah. I can tell you what the Battle of Fredericksburg was someday, but I, you know, I think I might have mentioned I lived on. Uh, I remember you uh, told me, yeah, you Marie's told me, Heights. You yeah. told me that. Yeah, it's very you know, funny because, uh, my God, that Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and maybe Gettysburg, Pennsylvania Courthouse. Some of that Gettysburg could have been one. I don't know what would have happened if James right. Long, yeah. James Longstreet. Right, if he, if he, if he turned if the flank, right? Yeah, and gone right down into an unprotected rear of Washington. Yeah. And I think well, they, would, they would have had a settlement. So it was very lucky that Lee did not listen to some other advice. And Did decide. I see you on t- talking about this with Laura? Were you on? Oh, not Laura, somebody else. You were uh, I did. A, I did. The a, ignorance of the Civil War. <laughs> I, no, I said that last night. I was okay. on Kaylee McEnany. I was on uh, Jesse Waters. Yeah. Oh, she Kay- was substituting. Yeah. Yeah. I like her a lot. I, yeah. I don't. I don't know her, but she, she's been substituting, and it seems like when I'm doing stuff this week, she's the host. I'm doing one in about two hours. Oh. Um, hey, I don't know who the host is. It might be her. But she asked me. They were talking about Nikki Haley in the Civil War, right? And how everybody pounced on her, and I, I made a point that. She was an artful. That was her sin because, you know, there's internal improvements. There's tariffs. There's new territories coming into the states, into the union. There's nullify. These were all issues, but they all in some way were tangential or had something to do with slavery. She right. didn't say that, but she did say it was about government and the freedom of the citizen. By extension, I think she just thought, well, if you're talking about freedom for everybody, obviously you're talking about the end of slavery. But she didn't right. articulate. So they jumped on her. And then I said this was ironic because these people know nothing about the Civil War. And I've spoken, you know, I've spoken at four or five hundred universities the last, I don't know, 45 years. And I always would ask students, is there a class in the in your catalog on the Civil War? And if there is, it's always Harriet Tubman or women behind the lines, or sexuality among the troops. Never classical study of the Civil War. So they they don't know any of that. And that guy was a plant that asked the question that she didn't answer the way she should have. And then I just finished by saying, if you really want to get angry at people that are racially insensitive, get mad at Joe Biden, because this guy 
praise to the skies, James O. Eastland and Hermit Talmage. And don't believe, don't listen to Victor. Listen to Spartacus and uh, Camilla yeah, <laughs> Harris. Yeah, Cam- right. Camilla Harris. They both said he was a racist when they ran against him. And then right. when he was president, he's called two subordinates boy. Right. He called two journalists or blogger and a host uh, junkie and you ain't black. You ain't black. Right? Don't, yeah. And we'll never forget. Oh, how can you beat this? Barack Obama's the first mainstream black candidate, African-American candidate. It's clean. And he's articulate, too. I, think, I remember Barbara Jordan. He wasn't a more articulate candidate than her. And he uh, then he went to that crowd of black professionals and said, they're going to put you all back in chains. Mitt Romney is. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And y'all. Yeah. He yeah. It up too. So yeah. he's he's had a whole history of racism. And every time. And, you know, I mentioned that. I don't know if I should have, but. I, I said, if you want, and you can also go reference the text that were on the laptop. You remember that scene where he's talking to his niece or is it his sister about, I think it's his cousin about procuring women for him. And he says, no Asian. I don't like them. Don't want Asians. Yeah. Yeah. And then she says, don't worry, I don't do Asians or something. Uh, So if you want to get a family that's dysfunctional, but has racial (laughs) Proclivities. <laughs> that guy should be held to account. And yet, yeah. yeah, not Nikki Haley, who, according to their own, remember the logic of DEI and woke is if you're a person, quote unquote, of color, you're not capable of being a victimizer. You're permanently and forever a victim. So she's half Indian. So she, how can a person like that be? Of course, I think Kaylee mentioned that she had, you know. Uh, allowed statues to be taken down of Confederates and stuff. Anyway, yeah. I admire Kaylee because uh, when I, I remember her as a press secretary, she was kind of diminutive, you know, small, petite, yeah. and she, she'd go out there and there would be this whole crowd, mostly of men, right? And they hated Trump. And they'd scream and yell at her and try to, and unlike Karen, she didn't lie. She just would just take a deep breath and then she said no. Actually, here is, and she had all those facts, and she was really good. I thought she was an excellent press secretary. If Trump well, is the nominee and he wins, I he could do no worse than having her come back. She'd be great. Yeah, well, well I, 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 I wouldn't want her to do that, though, because that would be one of the worst jobs in the world. Oh, we, we would see the uh, the dichotomy. <laughs> I mean, I, I suggest if if Trump is nominated and Trump wins, that the next press secretary wears hoplite armor. Hey, who is his first press secretary? I can't remember his name. Oh, come on! I, oh, no. Sarah Huckleby Sanders. No, no before her. Before oh, her. Sean, the, Sean Spicer. Spicer, yeah. I mean, like the first I, moment he was he was. Like torch uh, right out of the box. Was, yeah, they, uh, he's a very yeah. nice guy. He, he was at Newsmax for a while. I think he's yeah. at News Nation. I did a couple of his shows. I, I like him, but I don't know what happened. They uh, kind of. I think he wasn't ready for the venom and hatred. Yeah, they, was a, I think his attitude was, "Wow, this is not a press secretary's job. This is target uh-huh. practice. I'm not going to yeah, do right. it." Yeah, and then Sarah. And then you looked at Sarah Huckabee Sanders' face. It was like. Oh my God! These people are really crazy and mean, aren't they? And they hate us. Yes, they do. And I, yeah. think, it, I think it wore her out. Well, they know when to turn it turn it 
on and they know with Biden when to turn it off. I, so. I don't know. I, I don't know if Trump is still on good terms with Kaylee, but if he is, he should get her back because uh, I liked her. Right. Something about well, her. I like uh, about her attitude and her energy. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, she's very, very uh, pleasant. It seems. Yeah. All right, we have to wrap this. She's very knowledgeable and prepared. Prepared is what I'm thinking. Nobody out prepared her. Unlike Corinne Jean-Pierre, who doesn't (laughs) seem to know anything. Likes to bat her eyes and show that uh, show the uh, the, the makeup Wait. on the top lid. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, Victor. Quickly, two comments I have to read as we close yeah. out uh, this show. Uh, one is uh, from Pamela seven six four four, who writes about. We had this conversation a couple of podcasts ago. She she writes your pod. Uh, Christopher Hitchens stories were great. The tequila and your son calling any number he can find made my mouth drop open at the results. The ruptured appendix, surgery, and all meds all coming together. Amazing. You have led an extraordinary life as a plain old farmer. Wonderful. That's yeah. from all, all I'll say about that is I owe my life to my son happened to be home when I called. Let's sell right. He happened to see a number. He called it. It happened to be Christopher Hitchens, who called Donald Rumsfeld, who happened to call a official who was in Iraq who happened to know of a doctor who was there who happened to have a whole suitcase full of antibiotics and expertise about how to treat somebody who'd had a ruptured appendix. And I happened to have an Egyptian guy who just happened to be there training Libyans that night in his pajamas. And he'd never (laughs) taken out a ruptured appendix and we had not very good facilities, but he did it. Well, you're again, Victor. I said before, you're indestructible, and and I that seems to get the fates and the and God wants wants you to keep on keeping on. Now I have one other comment to read, and Victor, this cannot lead to any recounting or updating. This is from USS Tommy, who writes, "Thanks for the." Uh, it's titled "Thanks for the Optimism," and he writes, "Sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel starts to get very dim. Thank you for brightening it up." By the way. How are you handling your pickup truck issue? How are I you- not good. I, I, I apologize to everybody, Jack. Uh, oh, okay. I did because I was exuberant. I got this letter and it said, Mr. Hansen, your repurchase request has been approved. You will be hearing, we need your driver's license, your pink slip, your registration, and your bill of sale. If you own it, please get these documents ready. You'll be hearing with somebody immediately. Nothing for three weeks, nothing. And then the dealer, because uh, I has I, apparently I have to have it fixed before they'll buy it back. Yeah, and it's not fixed. There's one really sw- wonderful guy there who's been very nice to me, but the rest is it's like yeah, uh, the parts in L.A. next week. Yeah, parts in L.A. I don't know. I guess the parts in L.A. You think the parts still in L.A.? That's been going on since October sixteenth. And I and I took three and a half weeks to get there because I called every day. Can I get in today? Yes. Can I get in today? Yes. So I get these great letters from people who have Echo Diesels, and there are two types, Jack. Right. There are they're a wonderful truck. I have three hundred thousand. They're quiet. They get thirty miles the gallon, uh, and they like them. And then the other is. 
Victor, remember, it's 260 horsepower. It's a six-cylinder engine. It does have up to, I don't know, 400 torque, and they say it can tow 11,000. Don't believe it. It's a six-cylinder engine. It's very small cubic engine. It's a diesel. And oh, by the way, you think you're getting 30 miles a gallon with your four-wheel drive on the freeway, but you're not, Victor, 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 you're not computing the entire cost. Diesel fuel can run from 10 to 50 cents higher per gallon. Count that in. Victor, the oil changes have to be more frequent. Compute them over the life of the car. Victor, they're more expensive oil changes. Total it all up, as I have, and you will see that it's nominal economy. You better go back and just get a V8 Hemi. I've got that letter a couple of times. You know what's weird about it is, though, I'm really enjoying this because the number of people who know so much about uh, Rams, right. I think I can get a PhD in Ramonology now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they're schooling right. me on every aspect. Yeah. yeah. Well, such, I have to say something. There's something about the American guy who likes trucks. They know everything about them. They 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 do their own maintenance. I, I was used to, I really fallen I'm, before I wasted my life riding, riding, riding. I used to change oil and fix things. And I knew a lot about trucks, but in my senality, I forgot most of what I learned. But I love these letters. But anyway, the last thing I'll say, because we got to go, is yeah. I'm on hold, but I have an offer from not the dealer, but Stellantis that owns Dodge Ram to buy it back. And I just hope they give me credit for now what will be six months of no use. Okay. And then I, you, if I get enough money and I have enough money, I'm going to go right out and buy a V8 Hemi Ram. You see how well I did at keeping you from talking about this. <laughs> I know. I can't stop about it. I'm getting I, I don't I I, I say to myself not, I always say not this week. I'm not going to talk about this. Yeah, week. yeah. Well, I, folks folks are interested. Thanks uh USS Tommy for your your uh, kind words and Pam 7644 and everyone else who leaves comments on Victor's website, The Blade of Perseus, uh, or on uh, iTunes and Apple. So I think that's about it, Victor. We'll be back soon. With the, thanks all for listening. We will be back soon with another episode of The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.